this is Lisa Pierce, Executive Editor of Packaging Digest, with another episode of Packaging Possibilities, a podcast that reveals what's new and what's next for packaging executives and engineers, designers, and developers. In this episode, I'll be talking with Bob Lilienfeld, a regular contributor to Packaging Digest, as well as our sister publication, Plastics Today. Bob's latest gig is as the executive director of SPRING, which stands for the Sustainable Packaging Research Information and Networking Group, SPRING. But uh, you might know Bob from his earlier careers as the editor <laughs> editor and publisher of the Use Less Stuff Report, uh, the leading consumer newsletter dealing with waste reduction, or maybe from when he worked with Maripen as the Senior Director for Communications and Outreach. Or you may have seen him on TV when he hosted a monthly news segment called Use Less Stuff. Back in the day, Bob also worked with William Rathje, the founder and director of the Garbage Project, which was famous for its archaeological studies of modern refuse, aka landfills. Uh, Bob and Rathje co-authored a New York Times op-ed piece, as well as the book Use Less Stuff, Environmental Solutions for Who We Really Are. As you can tell, Bob has been immersed in sustainability for quite some time, decades. He is a recognized expert in the areas of waste prevention, environmental trends, and packaging. Well, this old dog has got some new tricks that we're going to explore, including, <laughs> including new shifts in sustainable packaging development. What are these shifts and why are they needed? You're about to find out. Bob, hello, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining us for this Packaging Possibilities podcast. Well, as we like to say in the the Italian section of Broomfield, Colorado, il piacere è tutto mio, the pleasure is all mine. Oh, wonderful, how sweet, thank you for that. Well, um, spring, so that's your newest venture. Tell us a little bit about it. It, it sounds new, but it's something I actually tried to start 25 years ago. And at the time, it was called the Center for Informed Decision Making. Mm. And the idea was to be able to use critical thinking and, and critical thinking tools to make better decisions regarding packaging and the environment. Uh, it was a little before its time. Uh, so it's something I've been thinking about for, for quite a while. And about six months ago, I was engaged with some people on LinkedIn, and I got so tired of, of listening to the misinformation and, and trying to explain the science behind sustainability and sustainable packaging that I just sort of reached out to the people on my network, and I looked and said, where are the experts? Who are the people who can help me? Um, and I, I put together sort of a charter and a mission, which was to be able to provide um, good good information based on sound science and to do it in a material neutral way. And I found an, a number of people like me who felt similarly. Let's, you know, let's let's 
let's find ways to make both the public more aware of, of what really needs to happen, but also policymakers. And th that, that's been the biggest difference is at the end of the day, any decision that gets made regarding sustainable packaging has to be made by policymakers. And they're going to turn to the solid waste management experts in their communities or counties or states. How do we get all these people together and, and, and talk about this from a, a really scientific perspective? I, I like the, the the angle that you have on that, especially where you're um, trying to also educate, inform, engage um, the consumer audience, the general public out there. Because the one thing that I've seen in the decades that I've been covering this industry is that um, sometimes uh, what I believe, and of course it's just my opinion, uh, informed opinion, but opinion only, that sometimes people in our industry make decisions because of perception with the consumer rather than reality you know the actual what's what's really good and um so part of that is because the consumers the general public is uneducated about the ins and outs of packaging i mean it is an industry there's professionals and everything it's not hard to understand but it is complex and being able to explain things to these consumers helps the brand owners um, make hopefully better decisions as well to where they're not just catering to like you were saying earlier misinformation that the general public just you know goes with um, I, I really like that you're including that all the way down to the, the, the bottom of the tail um, there for um, educating and informing and engaging. So um, one of the things that I want to talk about today is spring has a, a unique take on sustainable packaging development in several areas. And um, there's two that I want to focus on right now. One of them, your new R word in um, the litany of the R words that we're familiar with, um, specifically reduce, reuse, recycle. And then second, I want to um, ask you, um, get your take on the waste reduction goals that we've been seeing from so many. So, um, but let's start with the first one first. Um, hearing the rationale behind changing the familiar reduce, reuse, recycle to reduce, reuse, and recover. What's that all about? Recovery is a, is a bigger concept than recycling. Is in, and what I mean by that is that today people think that when they're recycling, in reality, what's happening is, is we're, we're recovering that material and it provides the potential to do something else with it. So when you add in the fact that nobody understands the difference between mechanical recycling and chemical recycling, and we'll call it molecular recycling, that and industrial composting and waste to energy, all, all of those are recovery tools. And at different points in time and in different places, each of those tools has different values. So if, if you have a very well-established mechanical recycling infrastructure, 
that's the first place that you're going to go to recover materials. If you're a Southeast Asian country that has no infrastructure per se, and you get to start from scratch, some of the technologies that we have today might make you come up with different decisions. Your your mm-hmm. first, you know, your first built re- recovery facility may not be a recycling facility. Um, maybe it's a chemical recycling facility, mm-hmm. or maybe in the case of Singapore, it's a waste to energy facility. So it's it's a matter of saying that. Well, we we don't really want to get into the business of telling people what they should do with those materials. The important thing is that they have to understand they have to recover those materials. And Indonesia is a perfect example of that. Okay, because, why? Well, because Indonesia right now is is where is they have a most of what they do, especially in Jakarta, is um, I'll call it energy recovery. They call it incineration. Um, but the greatest problem facing Indonesia in terms of, of waste is the amount of material that's going into the oceans, specifically the Java Sea from Indonesia, um, other areas of the ocean from uh, a number of the, of the Indonesian islands. But they're not looking at it from the perspective of preventing that waste. They're looking at it from the perspective of Making of, of doing something with the current waste so that it doesn't end up in a landfill. So if you're worried about landfilling or you're worried about um, waste energy, you still haven't said, how do we make sure it gets to those facilities? Mm, we, have to have, we have to have the infrastructure to get it from people's homes to the waste energy facility, to the recycling facility, to the industrial composting facility. So it, it's, a, it's a matter of collecting all of those dots. It's also a matter of people understanding that recovery is, uh, recovery is the hammer. And the, re- the, way, the reason I say that is there's a Japanese expression, to a person with a hammer, all problems look like nails. A nail, yeah. Right. So we want to believe, and we've been led to believe, that recycling is the hammer. And recycling is what will solve all of our problems. It's not. It's recovery that we have to look at. And in order, when we look at the problem of what does recovery mean? Okay, we can collect this material. Now, what do we do with it? Now, recycling may be a hammer. Chemical recycling may be a screwdriver. Industrial composting may be pliers. So if you've got a six-sided bolt that you have to, you, have to, you know, screw in or whatever, you're not going to do it with a hammer. You're going to do it with a pair of pliers or a crescent wrench. So, so what we want is to expand the discussion so that people understand the value of recovery. And then once you understand that, then you go, well, given that, given the infrastructure we currently have, given the problem, given the problems we face, what is the best solution for the for the environment within our physical, cultural, financial mm-hmm. um, infrastructures or perceptions or definitions. I'm glad you added that last one, the financial economic um, side of it, because it's so critical. I'm also glad that earlier on you talked about um, uh, waste to energy, but then you also used the word incineration because they're not, I mean, they're sort of the same thing, but they're really two different things. And a lot of people 
in the industry understand that, that you can incinerate and not have the value of recovering that energy. Um, but that's not what the best tool is. The best tool is to incinerate and capture that energy. I mean, that's the whole point of, in my opinion, of using incineration um, at that point. Um, that's, that's wonderful. It does take a little bit of a different mindset to it. Now, in the U.S., the vast majority, I don't even know what, you know, 98, 99 point whatever percentage um, is the recovery is at the municipality level. Um, right. where, where do you think it's going to be moving forward? Is it still going to be that? It just seems to be failing so badly these days for recovery. It, I, I, pardon my French, it's going to take an act of God to change that. And, and the reason has to do with the way the infrastructure was, has been set up, um, the various rules that are in place, um, the fact that it's municipalities who control their own solid waste um, situations. It's the municipalities who make decisions regarding waste collection is done on a franchise basis or an individual basis. So it's such an established system, it, it's going to be hard to, to undo it. So to me, the, the issue isn't so much as to who does it, but is what is it that they're um, tasked with doing? And those are the types of decisions that would be better off made at state um, regional or, or federal levels. Um, I've really come to change sort of my opinion on, on this. And I no longer believe that, um, that decisions like this ought to be made at municipal levels because um, the, the real issues go far beyond any municipal level and that it's the collective uh, impact of all of these together and not the individual impact of each solid waste district that we need to be concerned about. When all we were worried about was, oh, our landfills are filling up or I don't want a landfill in my backyard, NIMBYism, if you will, made these decisions local. But if we're talking about climate change and greenhouse gas generation, these are global decisions. And yes. we would be lucky, lucky if we could make those decisions on a national basis the reality is that we should be making those decisions on an international basis. Is anyone working on um, potentially having a non-municipal solution maybe coexist with what the the um, infrastructure that we have now? To be honest, I don't know. Um, okay. I'm not aware of any that are. Um, and uh, it, it's such... An, an uphill battle, and because there are so many in, entrenched factors, um, and and the, the factors go to things people don't even think about. I mean, people who work in MRFs have have jobs, and they depend on on that Mur that MRFs. MRFs. I'm sorry, oh, MRFs. <laughs> municipal recycling facilities. Just in case um, any anybody listening wasn't familiar with the term right. MRFs. Sorry, yes. sorry. Um, so. Municipalities don't want to give up facilities that employ a significant number of or, or potentially significant number of, of their constituents. Uh, so 
it, it's more than simply, well, who's going to collect the trash? There are, as you said, significant financial implications to be had. And the reality is because all, many municipalities differ in terms of population density, um, purchase patterns, disposal patterns, we're probably best, it's probably best left to leave the collection on, on a local basis. But in terms of the goal setting, setting those are decisions that need to should be made at higher levels. Okay, so we're collecting waste, which is potential um, for recovery. Um, so, where is the disconnect between collection and recovery? Is it just the single stream? Is it the separating at the household level? Where do you think um, the we can? Where do you think we can move the needle in that regard, as far as collection versus recovery? The from a collection standpoint, the probably the the single most important thing we could do would to have a national standard regarding what we're going to collect and why we're going to collect it and what we are going to term term as actually being recyclable. There are there's a consumer perception of what recyclable means, which is that if my town tells me it's recyclable, it means I could put it in my bin. And, there's and, and is that not is that not correct? It's wildly incorrect. Okay. Because so much of what goes in that bin is not being recycled. So uh -huh. when I think of my definition of recyclable is something that I know if it goes into my bin, the odds are at least 80% that it's actually going to make it to a reprocessing facility. It's going to get through a MRF and somebody's willing to pay for that material. So I know this is heresy, but from that perspective, polypropylene doesn't make the grade. Not yet, so the, but they're they're working on that. Bob, well, and but, take take back five or or I forget I, the I name am, of the program. And, you're, you're absolutely right. And I I have to say that in my um, uh, town and where how I recycle, there well Seven Up is I I buy two liter bottles of Seven Up, and on the cap now it says put this cap back on before recycling. So I've been doing that. But you know what I just realized? I haven't checked to see whether what my town does. Oops. Well, if, if the cap stays on the bottle, then it might make it to a reprocessor. If the cap comes off that bottle, and this is the reason they tell you to stick it on, mm -hmm. it's going to fall through the filters when you get to the MRF. But, but, but the, here's where there's a, a serious definitional issue is the polypropylene producers have every right to claim that they are quote-unquote recyclable based on FTC guidelines. They can claim that 50 to 60% of communities, um, people in 60, 50 to 60% of households can put polypropylene containers in their recycling bin or bring them to local drop-off points. But only six to nine percent of that material actually gets recycled. That's so sad. 
Well, it is sad, but the reality is that to the average person, when they hear that, they get really annoyed. They feel as if they've been duped. So the question is, how do we create a system where what you think is recyclable is actually being recycled? And okay. that, it, to me, that is the, the, the hardest thing that, that has to be done. And it, it's going to make people in certain industries uncomfortable. Okay, well, we will um, look to 2022 and uh, further for more updates on that. Um, but I do want to get into the second um, topic, and that is about waste reduction. So according to what I've read on about Spring, um, Spring also believes that the goal of waste reduction is really greenhouse gas reduction. Um, that's carbon footprint, correct? That's what you're talking yep. about there? Okay. So um, companies have been measuring and, hmm, uh, fingers crossed, lowering their carbon emissions um, for a while now. Um, and you say the tactics of doing that are going to change, even though the goal is going to be the same. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, happy to do so, because that's a critical point here. Um, and this is the flip side of the polypropylene not being recycled argument. Okay. Polypropylene is a very inexpensive material with good strength to weight ratios, significant um, functional properties, um, and is very efficient to make both economically and environmentally. So if you look at that from the perspective of greenhouse gas generation, it's very hard to replace polypropylene with, with something else that provides the combination of functional value, economic value, and frankly, environmental value. So from that perspective, polypropylene ought to be considered a highly sustainable material. If you look at it simply from a recyclability perspective, it's not. So what we're saying is, if the real objective is to reduce greenhouse gas generation, then you have to look at sustainability from a completely different way. And if you look at it from the latter perspective, um, there's no reason to be, if, if, you, if you're the typical consumer, you shouldn't be that concerned that polypropylene isn't necessarily being recycled at a particularly high rate because the value that it provides is prior to the recovery of that material for reuse. Right. So, and there's more to it than that. And that is that- Much more. Much, much, absolutely. When you look at greenhouse gas generation, reduction in GHG as your primary objective, then all of a sudden, things like chemical recycling to the public make a lot more sense. And, and the fact that polypropylene can be easily chemically recycled should completely change public perception of its value. As so, well as a, a number of other plastics that are used right. in packaging as well as other products. Right, absolutely. So what we're saying is if you go back to why we should be concerned and what our principal goal is, 
if our principal goal is green reduction of greenhouse gases, then our principal strategy is probably not going to be in and of itself mechanical recycling. Correct. And, and I that's follow the, I follow the logic on that 100 percent. And that's really the point we, we want to make. If you if if you go to a doctor um, and you need surgery and the doctor comes out with a um, bandsaw, you should probably be concerned. If the doctor comes out with a scalpel, you should probably go, oh, okay. So what we're saying is define the problem, define the solution or solutions, and use the tools that are most likely to solve the problem with the least amount of economic, environmental, and personal discomfort. Sounds like that's what we should have been doing all along. But it, it, okay. it is. It is. Okay, so I have to play devil's advocate here for just a minute. Does everyone agree? Okay, in um, in college, in my logic class, one of the, the earliest things that I was taught was um, whatever your premise is, you base your argument on that. Um, people can attack your argument and you, 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 you still have a strength because your premise is strong. But if they attack your premise, regardless of what your argument is, you're done. You're, you're done. So I have to ask, how many people agree that greenhouse gas reduction should be the main goal? I'm going to answer that in two ways. If you ask the public. Yes. You might get that answer as number one, depending on how the question is worded. If you're, if the average person is simply given a list that says which rank these issues in terms of importance, you'll get a different list than if you say the greatest issue facing human beings today is the threat of cl global climate change. And then you say which of these is most likely to mitigate that, you probably, you'll get greenhouse gas generation near the top. It's probably not going to be number one. And what's probably going to be number one is people saying plastics going into the ocean, because that's what they've been led to believe. If you ask experts, climatologists, uh, meteorologists, polymer scientists, they're all going to say, without a doubt, it's greenhouse gas generation. Okay. Okay, so many, many years ago, I don't even remember how many, uh, because the years are all running into each other now <laughs> for me, um, but a while ago, someone had proposed, why don't we have some way of generating a single measure, whether that be a number or some other kind of icon or whatever, to communicate simply and immediately the value of a package from a greenhouse gas point of view, a, a, a carbon footprint point of view. I'm sorry, not greenhouse, carbon footprint. Let's keep it on, on that. So let's say out of a scale of one to 100, one to 10, whatever, you'd everybody, every package, every product would have a number. And of course, the lower the number, the lower the 
affect the, the carbon footprint. So consumers could very easily compare on the shelf two products side by side, one that's a three, one that's a seven, and hopefully pick the three. Um, is that something that's possible? This is why I love talking to you. Um, and we're going to drag in the other thing I know you wanted to talk about right now, and that's the definition of what a sustainable package is. We, because we I can't, I can't answer your question without going into that. And and when we look at sustainable packaging, we, we tell people two things. First, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if what you're really looking for is zero free waste, get over yourself. That it's an aspirational goal, and that there will always be waste. The issue there's, is there's always going to be consumption. There, it's a byproduct of consumption. Right. Well, it's it's waste is entropy. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So, in the universe, there's always entropy. So, if you look at entropy in terms of the package, you've missed the big picture, which is the entropy regarding what's in that package. So, if you got a 72-inch flat-screen television in a package, and that package doesn't get your television from Shanghai to uh, Sheboygan, it doesn't matter how sustainable the package is by itself. The product that was in there, which costs a thousand times more than the package does and produces hazmat material when it's broken, all of the resources were destroyed in not getting that package to you or product or to you. Product. Mm-hmm. And on a daily basis, food is, in a, is a similar position, is that um, the package that gets you your food in perfect condition with maximum shelf life and appetite appeal is the most sustainable package you could buy it in because 95% of the waste comes potentially from that food not getting eaten. Correct. So you, you need to take this up a level to say it isn't about just the package. It's about the product and the package. So how do you get the most product value to the purchaser with the least amount of economic and environmental waste. And you have to throw in the the food waste that goes along with that. So um, that totally changes your perspective of what a a sustainable package is. And, And that's really the discussion we need to have because nature is amoral, nature is material neutral. Nature only keeps score in one way, how much CO2 is entering the environment versus how much is leaving it. And so that that difference is is the critical difference. So it it doesn't matter to nature if if you're using paper or plastic. What nature cares about is how much CO2 is being generated by the process of, of that package and product getting you your food. And this is why this is why it becomes very. I mean, we're having a discussion that everybody in this audience completely understands, but their children don't, and their spouses don't, and their neighbors don't. Um, we're in a very odd time in, in in history where we no longer want to believe experts, um, and, well, and and that's that's a shame. It is, but can you blame us? I mean, seriously, we been through a lot these last uh these last several years uh yeah but 
But it, it goes beyond just the last several years. But that's a whole. It, do, it does. It does. But I guess um, the what I really like about this is it, it's uh, getting me to think a little bit differently myself. And I know you and I have touched on this a, a little bit ago. Um, as I prepared for this, and I've read up on spring, so I have a little bit of uh, added benefit there. But um, it still takes some thought, because all along, I think, from a packaging sustainability point of view, the hardest job for the brand owners with that um, connection with the general public, the, the consumer, the hardest part of that has always been the communication. And again, packaging and even sustainability is not difficult to understand, but it is a complex issue. And that's where it gets hard from a communication point of view. That's why, you know, I wasn't um, asking, I was somewhat asking Fishy about um, you know a single number carbon footprint number on a package, but it almost has to be that easy for consumers for them to get it, or consumers and their misperceptions are still going to continue to drive brand owners to make bad decisions about packaging and sustainability. But that's all I'll say about that. Okay, last question for you, Bob is what prediction now that we've talked about this and and all the excitement of what um spring is and what spring's going to be doing uh what predictions do you have here we are at the end of the year getting into the beginning of a new year what predictions do you have for sustainability in packaging for 2022 <laughs> easy easy um, question right yeah easy easy question um the sooner that, and, and I, I've written about this, the, the industry needs to allow the experts in the area of communication and consumer communication do their thing. They need, they need to follow their leads. So I'm going to predict that finally the trade associations and the material producers and the converters are going to look to the CPGs to help solve these problems. And as I've written about, and I have to say, just so people understand, I'm an ex-Procter & Gamble brand manager. I completely understand the way that company works. And I'm very thrilled and intrigued by the way they are going about educating consumers about how to recycle and what to recycle um, and, and the technologies they have available. They've made it very simple for consumers to see um, chemical recycling as simply a newer technology as part of recycling. Instead of talking about mechanical or whatever, they say recycling. And there's some new technologies that we're working on. I'll be. So That's pretty simple. Yeah. So the, the trend has to be to allow the links in the chain that that each link that has the most value to use that value as 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 a leverage point um, let the people closest to consumers tell the story and the fact that png is doing what it can right now tells you how important plastics are to them 
I had a discussion with the global head of packaging at Coke 10 years ago, and he said to me, we don't care what the material is. You know, people think we're in PET bottles. We're in PET bottles because they provide us with our with our key branding element of the swirl that we used to have in glass, but it's lighter and cheaper than glasses. And, and there are all sorts of benefits and that's why we're there. If somebody came to us tomorrow with a Coke bottle made from chewing gum and it, it fulfilled our needs, that's what we were do, would do. <laughs> P&G has sort of tipped their hand. They're, they have done a lot of work in terms of recycling capability for plastics. They um, have their own um, converting equipment. They do their own blow molding. They're, they see the environmental value of plastic. And so they're intrinsically involved in this. And let them do what they know how to do. Don't. And if the whole industry could work together with the CPGs, we'd see things differently. Right now, the CPGs have to rely on what consumers tell them. But there are certain brands that consumers trust. Yes. Let those brands lead the way in and terms of why they do what they do. Yes, and try to change the message for consumers or change consumers' minds about the message. I agree I 100%. And I just want to say, um, whenever it was I saw the very first or heard about the very first how to recycle label that the Sustainable Packaging Coalition put together, absolute genius, in my opinion. I love how simple it is and yet how um, thorough and um, just especially when you think of how much it communicates in such a small amount of space, which was a major concern for the brand owners as well, when space is limited on a package. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. A package is real estate. And as an ex-brand manager, I can tell you every square millimeter of that package had its place. And we were constantly considering what should go where and, and why. Um, that being said, uh, if you, if you look at flexible packaging, the, the How to Recycle logo says, you know, you need to bring this back to your stores. Okay, well, everybody pats themselves on the back, but nobody does it. I do it. I do okay. it. I swear right. to God, I do. I, I believe you do. When I say, I mean, the vast majority of the public doesn't do it. Correct. And, that is, and that's where, where the need for chemical recycling comes in. Um, so there's certainly going to be a trend there. The, the other area I wanted to mention is compostables. Um, and it pulls my hair out. I pull my hair out all the time when I can see, when I see all of the marketing that's being done to promote compostable packaging in places where it has absolutely no value. Um, it has significant value in food service. Yes. Where if, if you're a restaurant operator and you can put your packaging and your food waste in the same bin and, and get it out, and it's not going to a landfill. That makes complete sense. Yes. Um, it doesn't make sense necessarily for the actual compost facility who is only collecting that material because it'll do a minimum amount of damage and allows them to get what they really need. But And, and the same thing for certain agricultural films and sacks. But in, in terms of you know candy bars and going into, into compostable, uh, materials that that's a mess 
because it's going to gum up the recycling process. People have been led to believe that a compostable candy wrapper actually becomes compost. It does not. It is compostable only in the sense that it biodegrades in an industrial composting facility, and the real output is simply greenhouse gases and potentially microplastics. So there's a there's a, a big amount of consumer confusion to be fought here. The big companies all know this, all right? The P&Gs and the Unilevers and the Nestle's, they're all 100% aware of this. I'm not saying anything that most of your viewers, readers, or listeners don't understand. But the public doesn't know it. And smaller companies that, quote, unquote, want to do the right thing think they're doing the right thing by offering these materials, but they're really not. Well, one thing that most of the uh, general public doesn't realize is that compost facilities are producing a product compost and that's to help you know the earth uh, renew to grow additional product uh, you know produce whatever whatever it is it's growing and there are no nutrients in packaging materials that compost and yet you buy compost for the nutrients to put back into the soil. So I, I never, I never kind of got the, um, I never kind of got that. No, it, 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 it really doesn't make, make a lot of sense. Um, there are few compostable packages that provide any nutritive value. And the ones that do are, are cellulose based. They're, they're not, they're not plat. Well, cellulose is a plastic, but you know, you know, it is made out of wood. <laughs> thank you. They're 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 not polyolefins, if if you will. Um, so it 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 makes makes very little sense. It's purely a, it's it's a marketing ploy. It it is not a sustainability benefit. Except for the food service example, where it really does make sense because of the contamination. There's nothing else you can do with that. Um, the only other thing that you can do is throw the packaging away that's contaminated. It's really too difficult to recycle. So, right. got that. And the, the, only, the other one that I'm concerned about is the um, uh, what do you, when, water-soluble plastics. Mm -hmm like okay. PHA, um, mm -hmm. because I'm starting to see more companies trying to promote PHA for, for polyolefin replacement. And what people don't understand about uh, PHA is it doesn't biodegrade. I mean, when, 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 when you pour water on it and it dissolves, it's like putting a sugar cube in a cup of tea and it dissolves. It's still there. I mean, sugar. Mm -hmm. right. You you ingest as much sugar when it's dissolved as when it isn't. It, there's it's no chemical just, reaction. It's just in a different form. Instead right. of a solid, it's a liquid. Yes. Right. Same thing with dissolvable plastics. It is not the same as biodegradation. It does not go away. Um, and it creates slime when it gets into... Um, uh, solid waste facilities. Mm. The slime okay. is a technical term. So yes. Okay. Got it. Well, um, 
Bob, as always, I, I love having these conversations with you because uh, for the most part, we, we kind of stay on track and then every once in a while, we'll just veer off into another area. And it's that area that I think has some of the greatest promise. And that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love talking with you as well. Um, before we go, tell us just a little bit how people can get involved with SPRING if they are so interested. I'll have a link in the on the webpage with this podcast, but um, for people who are listening, how do they how do they get involved with SPRING? Which again, wait, stands for the Sustainable Packaging Research Information and Networking Group. SPRING. Go ahead. Um, go to springpack.net, S-P-R-I-N-G-P-A-C-K.net. Um, you can read about us. You can see who our experts are, um, what our philosophies are, how we operate. And there's a little button, a big button at the top of the, the menu bar that says connect to Spring via LinkedIn. If you do that, in, in effect, you join my LinkedIn network, which has now become the, the Spring Network. This was the easiest way to make that happen because I had no way to transfer my thousands of viewers over something new. And I just said, well, fine, I'll, we'll do it this way. Sure, so sure. That it, works. It, yeah, it, it's, it's very simple. Okay, wonderful. Bob, thank you so much. Again, always a pleasure talking with you and uh, going off in dif different directions. And I wish you all the best for the rest of the year. And uh, we'll be back in touch with you in 2022, if you can believe it's 2022 already. Well, given the last two years, I'm, I look forward to any new year because okay. hopefully things will get better. Yes, indeed. Hopefully they will. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. Il piacere è tutto mio. Yes. The pleasure is mine. <laughs> I know what it meant. I just didn't know how to respond in Italian. So, um, see. Grazie. Or, or, grazie. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks, Bob.